Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. We are at episode 300. I will welcome in my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome, sir. Happy 300. I am. I couldn't be more excited. Steve, what we're going to discover over the course of this episode is that open source is really kind of one. And if we look back at what has changed between 2017 and 2022, the differences are actually really quite stark. And I hope to exemplify that as we dig through and chew through all of the stuff we have to get to. So without further ado, we'll dig into our feedback segment. Again, we encourage you to participate in this process. The entire show from the beginning, from inception, from day one, uh, you know, was the concept that there are people out there and they are trying to do things with Linux. They want to use it on a daily basis. They want to incorporate it into their business. They want to rely upon it and leverage the technology to its fullest potential. They want to do that with open source software. So we are the team that comes alongside of you and helps you do that. We'll help you work through your issues. We'll help you figure out what the best way to get the thing done. Our first email comes in from William. William writes in and says, hello, no one, Steve. Thanks so much for taking the time to address my issue uh, with Blu-ray playing. I'd like to write you back and give you an update on my progress on getting my ThinkPad Edge to play Blu-ray discs. I greatly appreciate the advice you two gave me, and it was very helpful. I'm happy to report I did get the ThinkPad able to play and rip both Blu-ray discs without any apparent issues. I found that a 12.7 millimeter Panasonic Blu-ray drive that was manufactured around the same time as a laptop matched the faceplate on the ThinkPad's DVD drive. I simply swapped the Spiral Linux and had no issues detecting the Blu-ray drive. It was functional out of the box. Now, getting Blu-ray discs to work only took a little effort. Researching MakeMKV, I found that you can compile it from source, but you can also get a handy library that can be used by VLC to play Blu-rays. This nearly entirely solved my problem right there. MakeMKV could rip the discs, VLC that could therefore offer playback for them for the times that we rent movies. The only thing missing was Handbrake, to take the MKV files and squash them down into a more manageable size. Speaking of the rip files, this ThinkPad has no issues with playing the full-resolution Blu-ray rips. I was quite surprised and excited. The other advantage this library comes with MakeMKV is it allows VLC to rip Blu-ray movies as an alternate options. So there you have it. You guys gave the right advice and got me going. Thank you very much. Hey, you know what? Thank you very much, William, not only for asking the question, but then writing back in to let us know how it follow, how it worked out. That's really helpful because the next person that's listening to this, the person that's thinking, I want to rip Blu-ray discs on my laptop, and my laptop is a little older. Am I going to be able to do that? Well, congratulations, William. You just helped the next person solve that problem. So again, we're empowering people to use Linux and open source software. I love it. Our second email comes in from Greg. Greg writes in and says, Hi, Noah. You asked people to recommend a 3D printer. I have the Lulzbot Paz 6. It's a little on the pricey side, but I think it's worth it. I've had this machine for four years now, and I've had it only had to do minimal maintenance. 
It works out of the box without much assembly. They have fantastic customer service. The plans are all open source. It even comes with the STL files for parts on an SD card, and they include that. It gives me peace of mind knowing that I can start a print and have a 99% chance of completing. I've only had a handful of failed prints. They were either my fault or a bad filament. Octoprint works great. I've used it for quite a bit. It's nice to always have it go to the printer. I actually have smart plugs on my printer, and it's light. I can remotely turn it on or off with a print. I also have an automation setup that detects when the printer is done, and then it announces in the house and then turns the printer off after a short time. A second follow-up email about 3D printers comes in from Joshua. Joshua writes in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve, was listening to the conversation about 3D printers, and I noticed that three most interesting parts of the ecosystem didn't come up in your discussion. First, Clipper. Clipper is a free piece of software firmware system that moves the computational load for translating G-code out to a Pi or similar. It's very configurable and can work for things beyond 3D printers. The second is OpenSCAD. OpenSCAD is a code text-oriented CAD tool. If you're a coder or a math guy, it can be liberating to express your models in a series of operations rather than hand drawing. It also makes parameterization and reuse of components easy. And lastly, the Voron Project. The Voron Project is a project that publishes BOMs and guides to build your own printer from standard parts. So extrusion, gears, belts, etc. They have a number of designs and a number of ranges. You can use some of their core components as mods for consumer printers. These projects are what finally made me dive into the 3D printing world. Thanks for everything, Joshua. And Steve, you have you've you're at least tangentially aware of SCAD. Yeah, so I played around with Open SCAD. What I liked about FreeCAD better is that uh, the sketch area that that they give you, you can absolutely um, programmatically work with FreeCAD. It's um, it's actually done in Python if anybody actually cares about that. And on top of that, there's a bunch of modding that happens in FreeCAD that I didn't see necessarily in, in OpenSCAD. So there's a bunch of people at Red Hat that use OpenSCAD. And when I looked at the options, when you're talking about trying to ramp into a new CAD tool from somebody who hasn't used one before, it seemed like a, a slower, a, a less of a climb on ramp to get into a CAD software when I could kind of draw lines and stuff like that. And then from there, I learned about, um, you know, um, using parameters to make your builds up. And then from there, you can jump into either using what they call workbenches, which are just kind of different mods that are layered on top of FreeCAD, or you can just dive right into the Python and do it that way. So I didn't I didn't find anything compelling about OpenSCAD uh, over FreeCAD. Let me, let me be clear about that. OpenSCAD was fine. There's, you know, I'm not dissing on the project or anything like that. But I like the flexibility of FreeCAD, and it's got a super active community around it. Uh, so that's what I would have to say about that. I, I think that's kind I of would interesting. Res- I would respond this way. It's not for me. The, the concept of, hey, I want to do mathematical computational models, it's not for me. That's not the way I think. But I did have an experience with our developer this week. He had this beautiful diagram. We were retooling some of our, our GitLab workflow stuff, and... 
had this beautiful model and I asked him, what did you use to create that? And they were dot files, dot dot files um, that he could then render into graphs and all sorts of diagrams and stuff. And I, you know, at first I was like, I was like, man, this is really cool. The fact that you can type out all of that code and it generates a, uh, you know, a picture. And he, you know, as a programmer, he's very comfortable with that model and it makes more sense to him. I'm very much of the opinion, like, I want to see what I'm doing and draw the things out. Yeah, like I said, what I liked about FreeCAD is it gave you both options. So um, when you become more advanced, you can just pick up the the more code and text-oriented CAD side of things if you choose to do that. So you could, for example, use the, the sketch pad and, and kind of sketch it out and then dive into the code to do things. So like, I watched a video of a guy who was demoing his his workbench. And what he did was he sketched out just a basic, um, let, let's call it a cone. And then he showed how his workbench using the, the programmatic side of, of FreeCAD was able to just give him sliders on different parts, like making the bottom fatter or thinner or mm. things like that. And he did that all... Based, like he did that entire mod based on the Python underneath FreeCAD. So, yeah, I think they're both great projects. Um, for for me, I liked I liked FreeCAD better because it gives you both options and it didn't seem as daunting to get into. Absolutely. Our uh, fourth email comes in from Peter. Peter writes in and says, "Hi, no and Steve." In episode 299, you talked about remote software, and I want to share a very cool project with you. I recently came across Mesh Central, and I was extremely excited. If you put a Mesh Central router on the Internet, you have built yourself what you pay dearly for with the big providers. I could imagine that Mesh Central could be a possible solution for AltaSpeed, or at least ideally suited as an internal remote support for AltaSpeed customers. As I said, there's a bit of a learning curve to set up the system, but after that, it's a lot of fun to use. Some things I really liked about it. It gives me system information, file transfer, a remote shell, remote desktops. Clients can be Linux or Windows, graphical or non-GUI. Mesh Central is 100% open source and has a GitHub repo. The official homepage is meshcentral.com, formerly meshcommander.com. I would love to hear your opinion about this, but believe me, you have to test it and then you'll love it. Thanks again for the great podcast and keep up the great work. Greetings from Bavaria, Germany, Peter. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate it. As I mentioned on episode 299 and probably a handful of times outside of that, we are. We're actively looking at different remote support solutions. The thing that I like about Simple Help is it does all of the things I need it to do. The things I don't like about Simple Help is it's proprietary garbage. And I use the term proprietary garbage not in that the software is garbage, but just to say that the end of the day, they can pull the rug out at any time. They can change the licensing model. There is an activation process that has to happen with the server. It's self-hosted and, again, ha- checks all the boxes, but I'm actively looking for something else, and this absolutely checks the box. So as I was looking through uh, what Mesh Central has to offer, I like that it's uh, it's based in a web UI. I like that you can host it yourself. I like that they specifically say you can try the public server at your own risk at meshcentral.com or you can install your own server on Linux or Windows and run anything from a large cloud instance to a Raspberry Pi. And they're very upfront with the fact that uh, it's beta and that they're just now 
uh, getting some of the early versions out. I think they're on version two, 0.2.9. Um, but they also go out of their way to say that when you're installing that they value your privacy and that they don't collect any sort of usage data or telemetry. Um, they have tutorial videos on how to get everything set up. Have a decent website that gives a really good uh, overview of the installation and what the UI looks for, like. And the UI looks absolutely fantastic. So this is absolutely going on the short list of remote desktop solutions to uh, to do. I, I also I want to mention too. I downloaded their uh, user guide. Sometimes you can get a really good idea of where a project's at maturity-wise or support-wise based on what kind of documentation they have available. And this documentation is above reproach. It's fantastic. They have screenshots of everything. They have example configs. They have everything neatly defined. Um, just a, a very, very well-run project. So I was really excited to see that. And also like the fact that they support non-graphical uh, environments. That's something that Simple Help does do that. But a lot of them don't. A lot of them do like either you're a remote desktop thing and you're just remotely controlling the desktop or you're setting up firewall rules or tunnels or something like that to SSH in. Not always both. So very impressed with uh, Mesh Central and I'll continue to evaluate that. Our fifth email comes in from, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, McGill. McGill writes in and says, hi, no and Steve. Greetings from Mexico. Second, apologies for my bad English. Now for the question. My work office keeps a Windows 2003 domain controller, and at this point, no machine is using the domain. We just use LDAP through Fortinet and Synology to identify users and department relations. I'm very uncomfortable with that server, and I'm in search for an LDAP alternative, and finally, the idea is to retire that old server. I've seen several options in Linux, but would very much appreciate any insight you may have into an LDAP server that will play nicely with other devices and just do LDAP. Thanks again for the great show, McGill. So, Steve, I'm going to use my my executive discretion here, and I'm going to swap LDAP for uh, central authentication, because I think that's really what he's – it sounds like that's what he's really looking for. Um, so if you and, – and maybe that is LDAP, but maybe it's not – so if you woke up in Miguel's shoes and you were looking to ditch your Windows 2003 uh, domain controller that they're not using anymore, but you still needed to be able to I, have an identity management system for, for users, what would you look at? That's a tough one because I don't know what the external dependencies are. Like he's mm. mentioned Fortinet and stuff like that. That would make me believe that we are talking specifically about uh, an LDAP solution as opposed to just centralized authentication um, there's there's quite a few that might fit the bill, like especially when you're talking about um, kind of like purpose built distributions. So, uh, for example, like Turnkey Linux is out there. Uh, there's a couple of really good ones that that are a distribution that you install that that are just solely focused on making LDAP authentication a a, a primary responsibility. Of course, Red Hat has. Um, IDM, so the Identity Management Suite, um, which the upstream for that is Free IPA. Those are pretty good. So it depends on what you're trying to get out of uh, the uh, out of the system as a whole. So anything that's based on Samba Four is going to have some really good compatibility if you've got Windows clients or things that are expecting a Windows-like uh, implementation. Because the thing to know about for example, Active Directory is while it is a form of LDAP, they have their own 
they have their own schema. So it doesn't necessarily follow the same schema as an LDAP server. So it would depend on what clients, what your mission critical clients are that are connecting into it, how I might recommend uh, going with it. Um, I know that uh, Jim Salter from 2.5 Admins and other things, he has a couple of go-to um, Linux distributions that are that when people ask him this question, I can't remember off the top of my head uh, what some of them are called. But uh, yeah, I would say it, it very much depends on, on what you're trying to plug into it, which one to go for. Uh, any thoughts on the Red Hat Identity Management System and would that be appropriate here? Yeah, like I said, Red Hat has the IDM, the identity management, um, and it absolutely can be. The That is a very easy to get off the ground kind of LDAP uh, directory. It gives you a nice graphical interface on top of it. Uh, I definitely play around with it myself at home. If you want to play around, and this is just general audience thing, if you have a... Uh, developer account, which is free from Red Hat, you can go and get some uh, RHEL licenses. And that's the IDM, the identity management is included in the base RHEL. So you can just go and spin this up in your home lab and just, you know, have a copy of the of the downstream that RHEL, that Red Hat kind of sells to its clients. So and is the upstream, is that free IPA? It is. Okay. So, you know, I wonder if uh, if he might not start with something like free IPA and then work backwards, if it doesn't meet, because my understanding is free I, IPA is based in LDAP. It just adds like DNS and KDC and HTTP and a certificate authority and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's not based in, it is LDAP. So it's, um, it does have some additional stuff in there. What I like about free IPA is that you can cluster it really easily so that you mm. can do things like failover or syncing between um, controller nodes and things like that. So I I particularly like that one, but I also understand where you might want to have a Samba 4-based like Linux distribution out there that um, is trying to be as close to an Active Directory mimic as you can get. Okay. And the so the Samba implementation of LDAP your, your, or Identity management you're thinking is closer to a windows environment than maybe free ipa is it is um and it was built that way on purpose so um it's meant to emulate an mt4 domain controller um or an nt domain controller so uh windows hosts can join directly to that without a problem because it's mimicking all of that sort of stuff um so there are various distributions um out there that like I said, Turnkey Turnkey Linux is is one of them. There's there's a couple. Um, I forget Zential is another one. So there's there's a few out there that I've kind of played around with that that do this, and they're specifically meant at Windows client compatibility. Mm. So it sounds like if he's coming off of a domain controller, then that's probably likely his best uh, his best path forward because that's going to give him the closest drop in replacement. I would say if you've got a lot of uh, Linux clients, then yeah, or Windows clients, that's that's the way you want to go. If you're if you're managing things that can just do straight up LDAP, uh, you might be better off with like free IPA or or uh, identity management, something like that. 
Tubit in the chat room asked uh, questions called linuxdelta.com. You can submit questions that way in our interactive chat room at uh, geeklab.ninja. That puts them right in front of our face. They pop up here in our show doc, and then we address them. And Tubit asks, is there a way to see if anyone has been accessing the Intel management engine on a PC? And I'll be honest with you, Steve. I don't know what the answer to that question is. Is there a way to see who's been accessing the Intel management engine on a PC? Not from your not from your host, because the host is not aware of the Intel management engine as a general rule. It's its own operating system that lives separate, which is why um, you can do things like reinstall the operating system and all that low level stuff. It that's specifically how it was designed. Mm. As for how you might do an audit of that, I'm not sure. I wonder if there's some sort of audit utility built into the management engine, and if you reboot and go into it, if there's a way to see who had been accessing or the last time it was accessed, something like that. Maybe show the last failed access. I know that um, the Intel will publish like white papers on doing like as an IT operations person for uh, the management engine. So if I was researching this, I would start from that vantage point because oftentimes the the big people, like the enterprises that are interested in that, they'll they'll want the white paper on those kind of answers because that has to they'll have to pass some sort of security checks in order mm. to deploy something like that. So there you have it. Um, if you have a better answer to any of those questions, or if you know something that we don't. We invite you to write in live at AskNoahShow.com. Make your voice heard and contribute to the program. We would love to hear what you have to say. Our pick of the week this week is Free Show. You'll learn more at FreeShow.app. So I am always on the lookout for open source software projects. I'm particularly on the look for open source software projects that do what proprietary things are doing. And I say this all the time at AltaSpeed. If we have a proprietary solution in place, it's only a placeholder until we can find the open source alternative that does the thing. So for years and years and years, churches used a software program called Media Shout to display the slides on their on the on the background for singing songs and Bible verses and all that. And skate down the road a little bit, they transitioned to a newer piece of software called ProPresenter, which has become the de facto standard, not just in churches, but in presentation places all over the place. So if you have a conference, large conference, and you're uh, you're displaying a bunch of slides or a bunch of media assets, ProPresenter, it basically approaches the problem of presentation a little bit differently than most presentation softwares. Most presentation softwares have like this linear idea of we're going to start here and we're going to go two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, seventeen, and that's fine as long as the speaker and or the event follows that exact order. The train comes off the rails pretty fast if you get to slide number 16 and then the speaker mentions something back on slide 11 and then you see you've, and you've watched this. You've absolutely seen this if you've been at a presentation. Back, 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 back in the flip, 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 video link, flip, flip, flip. There we go. That's the slide I'm looking for. Nope. Forward to. Okay. Forward to. Oh, that's the one. Okay. It's unprofessional. It, it ta- it's distracting. It's It's obnoxious. And ProPresenter fixes that by allowing you to control exactly what hits that projection screen because we kind of acknowledge it as sacred ground. Hey, whatever goes up there, everyone's going to see. So the screen in front of me, really what I want is the best possible control interface for that screen over there. And I want to be real sure whatever it is I'm clicking over here winds up over there only when I want it to wind up over there. And I want to compose and play over here. And then I want to send it out over there. And that's what ProPresenter does really well, and it's why it's become kind of the industry standard. And if you go to any uh, media support 
page or, you know, Facebook group or, you know, church support place, you'll, you'll, you'll see this over and over again. People saying, will my computer run ProPresenter? Will this run ProPresenter? Here's the specs of my system. Will that run ProPresenter? Here's a 15 year old Mac. Will that run ProPresenter? People are asking, will it run ProPresenter? Why? Because it's become the standard. And, uh, and 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 two bit in the chat room it says this perfectly my experience with pro presenter can be summed up in the burning designer to see how far i can throw a mac <laughs> and part of that is because people in fairness to pro presenter people try to run it on woefully underpowered hardware and up until recently the only real open source contender has been uh, open lp which if your goal is to have some words that show up on a screen and maybe some bible verses OpenLP probably does that okay. If you want to do anything else, it is just, it's just not the tool for the job. Can't put it any more bluntly than that. Free show was mentioned to me in passing as we were doing an event. So we, from time to time, get called to come out to do, uh, like, um, AV and or just essentially be technical assistance for events. And so we were doing that at a Friends of the NRA dinner and we were out and our job was to go take pictures of the auction items and then put them up and then provide live video coverage of the people as they were presenting them. So people in the far back of the room could see it It was up on a big projector, that kind of thing. And came across this discussion of ProPresenter and we are saying, you know, it'd be really cool to have ProPresenter because we would be able to do this a little bit easier than opening Gwenview and getting to the picture and then switching OBS to that scene and outputting that to the display, which is how we were doing it. But again, at AltaSpeed, if we can't do it with open source, we either won't do that thing or we'll use the proprietary thing just long enough to get a placeholder. I'm not buying a Mac to run one piece of software, I'm not buying a Mac, period. So ProPresenter is just kind of out the window. And as I was lamenting my frustration about OpenLP and the lack of any such software in open source, one of the guys that is helping out leans over with his phone and says, have you seen freeshow.app? And I went, what is freeshow.app? Freeshow.app is an app that allows you to create a show for a song, a slideshow, or information. You can add slides, arrange them in groups, create different layouts for the same slides, preview the slides, and have full control over the output. Sound like another piece of software I was just talking about? In this room with me as we're doing this event is our lead service technician who also uh, has extensive experience with ProPresenter. And I lean over to him and said, check this out. So him and I install it on our laptops because they have it available as both a snap and an app image. And a few minutes later, freeshow.app launches. Both him and I, having never used the software before, and but having some experience with ProPresenter, immediately start trying to compose a show like we would in ProPresenter. And I'm telling you, if you took the user interface for ProPresenter and put it up on one screen and took the user interface for free show and put it up on another screen, it's like the design, it's like the developer sat there and went, OK, here's ProPresenter. Here's where the button is. OK, here's where the slide goes. OK, here's where this control goes. Here's how people will expect to do that, because never having touched this app, it functioned almost identical to ProPresenter and blew my freaking mind. They're not even at a 1.0 release yet. This is new software, and it is almost perfectly on par with ProPresenter as far as a, I want complete control over this output, and I want to layer these things, and I want to show these things. It's fantastic. And then they add a couple of whiz-bang features that don't even exist in ProPresenter, like the ability to control the entire app 
from another device. And so you can go to the IP address of the computer that it's running on with port 5511 from any browser as long as you're on the same network. And from there, you're able to create, edit multiple stage views. You're able to advance to the next slide, start a countdown timer. Anybody on the Wi-Fi network can connect and choose a view, or you can add a password so people can't view it. Now, ProPresenter doesn't have most of these features. They kind of sort of have it in the way of there's a mobile app that you can use to advance the slides. And there is an open source project called, uh, is it part of BitFocus or is it separate? But there's an open source project that will allow you to view the slides on a web browser if you have this open source project running with NPM. But natively, ProPresenter doesn't support any of that. FreeShow supports all of that. Uh, it is such a new program. They only have 38, the 3,841 downloads as of the time of this recording. I am rarely this impressed with sub 1.0 software. Usually there's a bunch of bugs. Usually there's things that just don't quite work right. Buttons that don't work right. It feels a little sluggish. It's not quite there. I did have the software crash, but I chalk that up more to it being an electron app more so than it's not a very well written piece of software because I think it's fantastic. So highly, 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 highly recommend that you check out freeshow.app. I, in fact, have a Dell Optiplex that is sitting to my immediate right that I just have a fresh install. And my goal here is to being able to post episode 300, start to be able to use things like freeshow.app to provide a more interactive experience in the way of visuals. So when Steve and I are talking about something, we can put the thing up on the screen and you'll be able to see it again. I vowed on episode one of this program. I have I have not ever had a Mac or Windows PC in the studio, and I never will. We'll continue to do the show and all of the production from start to finish on Linux. That remains true today. So episode 301, that will still be as true as it was on episode one. But we just have cooler open source tools today than we did back then. And so freeshow.app, I highly invite you to check it out. As we head into episode 300, it's not lost on me the stark difference between the Linux and open source world that was 2017. April uh, 3rd of 2017, we launched Ask Noah, and the goal was simple. We wanted to serve the open source community. I am, If you've met me in person, then you've undoubtedly seen this. I am the guy that wants to help you do whatever the thing you is that, that you're trying to do. I want to help you do it. And if that's fix your car, if that's help you with a server, if that's help you with a network, if that's help running wire or fixing things, I want to help. I want to serve you. And so when we started looking at 2017, what could we do and how would we turn that into a show? The concept that you could call in that you could email in, that you could be a part of a small community, and that we would answer those questions and come alongside you and help you with your technical journey, or connect you with the movers and shakers in the industry and in the community that are doing those things, that's what we aimed to do for a show. And so since 2017, uh, for the last five years, that is what we have been doing, reaching out to movers and shakers in the industry, bringing them in, bringing them on the program, and connecting you with that information, and then trying to exemplify and highlight the cool things that are happening in the open source community. And as I sat down to start putting together episode 300, 
it was hard to not look at the stark difference, the world I live in today, the world I lived in in 2017. In 2017, it was about selling open source or there was a there was a, a, a need or I guess more of a desire to help people understand the value of open stores. And so it was not uncommon at all to walk into a company and say, here is what we have and here is why I think this is more valuable to you and why this would be a good choice for you. Well, is it? No, it's not that. It doesn't, it, it's not that software and it doesn't have that license and it doesn't have that reputation. But if you look at what you're doing with that software, this one will do the same thing at a better rate. That was a conversation we had to have. Today, that landscape is entirely different. In 2022, I get companies all the time asking, is it open source or is it interoperable? Sometimes I get companies that are asking questions that they don't even understand the vernacular that they're, that they're using to ask the question. They just know that they're supposed to ask those questions. I don't know. You know, I, I, does it have the latest API thing? I know that's how you connect one thing to the other. And so is it API-ish? You know, and they don't even know what they're asking. And yet they're asking. And because they have that desire for interoperability, because they've been burned, they purchased a software solution or they got into a service and then all of a sudden it turned into, no, you can't get your data out of there. No, that won't talk to this thing. No, you can't monitor this with that. And it colored the way that people view their services. And so people are always going to want to and they will continue to want to reduce their costs and they don't want to maintain massive infrastructure. And so they've gone a number of different directions. One is just to move it up to the cloud and say, I'm offloading that responsibility to someone else. And COVID-19 definitely amplified that. It acted it acted as a catalyst for a lot of organizations that weren't working remotely or weren't working in the cloud. And then they just said, hey, we've got to do this. How do we make this happen overnight? And most system administrators, most network people said, you move to the cloud. You just move it onto the internet and then it's all public and then you don't have to worry about where you're working from because we're all accessing the same infrastructure over the same internet connection. And it just changed the way that businesses worked. Um, and as I watched that progression happen, it was interesting to see how many of those things wound up on Linux, even if they didn't intend them to, right? So you have companies that are saying, we're going to move to all Microsoft stuff. We're going to move to Azure. We're going to move to the cloud. We're going to move to Google, uh, you know, uh, Google Workspace and, and, and Google in the cloud. And all of those companies fundamentally rely upon Linux to be able to deliver the services that they deliver at the uptime that they deliver it and the scalability that they deliver it. The I sat in a uh, manager's meeting in which they were going over their plan to migrate to AWS. And the big push for AWS, even though it was more expensive, it was more expensive to do this in AWS than it was the way that they were currently hosting it on their on-prem infrastructure. And the entire reason that this manager, the, the, everybody in the room wanted to move towards an AWS cloud infrastructure was because they understood that it was more scalable. When you need more storage, we just spin it up. When we need more compute power, we just spin it up. When we're done with it, we just wind it down. And those are, those are the kind of things that I watched companies start with. We have a bunch of in-house Windows servers. We want to move it to the cloud. Oh my gosh, the cloud bill for hosting a bunch of Windows servers is astronomical. What do we do to get that down? Oh, we use this open source database software. Oh, we use these open source operating systems and then we can reduce these costs. Oh, now it becomes scalable because we can have high availability and we can slide containers around wherever they need to be and run wherever they need to be. Yeah, let's do it that way. And you're watching more and more companies get on board with that.
then you get to the Steve's levels. The kind of companies that Steve deals with are not the small to medium businesses. And yet these companies also have a reliance on Linux and Linux, on the Linux ecosystem, largely because they have infrastructures that are so large that they need to scale these things. And I guess I, I would, I would, I would defer to Steve. What has been your experience as you're working with uh, companies all around the country and as you're engaging with people who are leveraging open source and building their products on top of open source, do you see them talking about open source more or do you see them asking questions more uh, or is it more just, hey, that's what uh, that's what this platform said we should run it on. So we bought that software and we pay for that support and it doesn't really matter to us if it's open source or closed source. This is just the company we're working with. It really, it really runs the gamut, I guess. When I was reflecting upon this in the pre-show, I was thinking about how, in some cases, Linux exists in these places because it's replacing Unix. And we like the Unix-style workflow and how, you know, just the way that you interact with a Unix-style system. Mm. And so, yeah, open source is good, but that, that isn't necessarily the main driver. Uh, it depending on the client, right? So if, if they had a bunch of AIX or HPUX or, you know, whatever other flavor of Unix, they've been migrating these in the last half decade or so uh, because Unix is slowly dying. It'll always exist, just like COBOL will always exist somewhere. <laughs> but insofar as the, the predominant move is away from that, what I have seen is People are adopting open source technology because of the explosion in documentation that's out there. And by that, I mean like blogs. And it, it is absolutely shocking to me the number of clients that are actually uh, basing their information on blogs and stuff like that. And that's not wrong or mm. bad. I'm just surprised where they're like, yeah, so we read on this blog somewhere that, you know, such and such a thing happened. It's it's kind of like when you work in academia and everybody tells you that Wikipedia is terrible, you should never go to Wikipedia and you go into the real world and like that's the place that people have gone for <laughs> factual information. And so that doesn't mean that the information's bad. It's just you're like people actually use that as a source. Um, so th thinking about, for example, uh, Apache Kafka and how that I've I've watched the rise in Kafka in the last little while largely because people are are out there publishing like hey I did this with that and this is how I connected it and here's your nice walkthrough and not to say that those things weren't out there with the proprietary software but there's just been an explosion of that sort of thing because I think a lot of it it boils down to people like me who may be the implementers or the designers of a system can actually go out and get the software and tinker around with it. Like I'll give you a real quick one. Lots of my clients use something called Dynatrace for their, for the metrics and stuff like that. I have literally zero experience with it because it costs me money. And so mm. I can't spin this up in my home lab because I either have to jump through some sort of retarded hoops to be able to get a, like a, a trial key, which for the amount of time that I, I need it will have gone to the dustbin. Like it becomes useless to me because I may spin it up once and then I need to come back to it six months later for something and oh, my key is expired, right? And so instead of things like that, uh, a lot of us push towards, hey, I know you're using Dynatrace, but I know 
uh, like I've actually used this one and I spin it up in my lab and that holds a lot of sway. And so there's, there's a, a movement of the fact that the, the software is available, especially for, uh, like colleagues of mine. Cause you would think that these big companies would be like, yeah, sure. Like no problem. Go get a 90 day license for OpenShift and just like, here's a little bit of space. But no, that doesn't happen. So the people who are motivated to have their own home labs or whatever have to be able to get the software on like themselves and essentially in order to advance their mm, agendas in the companies. And largely that's open source because the proprietary stuff is just if there is a free thing, it's a big pain in the butt to, as to how to get it if you're not actually calling on behalf of the company. So I, I worked with a company, I worked for a company before I worked for Red Hat and I would call them and be like, so I want to test this thing. And they're like, great. So send me to like some department at, at the company you work for and we'll get that like a demo or like a, a demo thing. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, this is just me. I'm trying to <laughs> kick the tires, right? I just happen to work here. And then they just stopped talking to me, right? <laughs> no money for that guy. He's not yeah. going to buy anything. Exactly. Right. And whereas I don't, I can't tell you the number of things that I implemented like Ansible and Git and all of these sorts of things because they were things that I could play around with. And then I could go to my boss and be like, here's a working demo of the thing that I w was telling you about. Let's try and do this. So I think it hasn't been so much of a, um, a mind shift of, yeah, I need to be using open source as much as there's a there's a, a wealth of availability of software and people contributing to the overall ecosystem of documentation out there. And when you go searching for like, because remember, with these big clients, they're not trying to solve some small thing at some tiny scale. They're looking at like, how do I connect this giant thing over here that needs to do 7000 transactions a second or whatever to this thing over there? And oh, it turns out that people are doing with this Kafka, right? So like they're they're doing a general search of how are people doing this or how could I do this? And then and then if they can get their hands on it, that's the direction they go. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me, Steve, as I hear that, what I'm hearing is that companies don't like artificial roadblocks. And so when you prevent them, when you when you start to put friction in trying your product or getting onboarded into your product and there is less friction with the open source alternative it gets people in the door to the open source alternative thereby eliminating the comparison of the proprietary product to the open source product the potential client cannot choose to go with the open source one over the proprietary one if they haven't even tried the proprietary one so they in a lot of ways the proprietary vendor is shooting them, them themselves in the foot because they've held on to this idea or this model for so long that if you don't pay us, you can't use our thing. And I think what's happening is you're starting to see a bunch of geeks going, oh, that's what you want to do? Oh, we can do that in open source. Here you go. And so now we dramatically lower the barrier to entry. And so what you have is a bunch of geeks in their free time going, like you said, I want to kick the tires. And if you can kick the tires and bring it back to your boss and go, hey, I did a thing. I don't even really know what I did, but I did this thing and this looks like this kind of works. Even if there isn't a lot of hoorah around that project, if it can be presented and it works and you can find documentation on how to support it, why wouldn't we try it? Yeah, that's a huge thing, right? People underestimate the amount of influence that people like I have, right? I have a ton of influence. 
like not because I'm the smart person in the room, but they they walk in the room and they, they say, so how would you solve this? And I and I, if I can immediately come back and be like, you know, I'm not necessarily recommending this over other things, but this is my personal experience. And I have done X with this product, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, like I, I like I personally love Grafana. So one of the clients, I'm trying to push them towards Grafana because it's like, well, you could pay for like a plug in for that thing that you're you have over there to talk to other things or you can Hmm. use grafana which can just plug into various data sources and build your dashboard in that right i get no money from that but that level of um because my foot's in the door as someone who has this a wide variety of experience seeing things i have an unusual amount of clout with these people just because i can come in like these big companies they're often spinning their wheels stuck in toil and they don't have time to explore the software. And so they hire out and they ask for people's opinions. Like they hire Red Hat or they hire Accentra or a bunch of places. Some places hire tons of us at once and we all have to work together to kind of come up with the best idea. And so because of that, like we come in as, as the outside experts. And if I say, you know what? I like Sumo Logic over, I don't know, pick competitor. Mm. That holds a ton of sway. Because, you know, it's just my opinion, but it gives them something to latch on to and a direction to head down. Well, you know, the other side of that, and I think this dovetails very nicely with what you're talking about, people finding blog posts and documentation all over the place on the Internet. A lot of times people will make their technological decisions based on what they perceive will be the lowest friction of support. Right. So, for example, my IT guy tells me this is the bee's knees. I get this all the time at the radio station I work for. I'll walk into my general manager's office who has absolutely no idea, uh, you know, an IP address from, uh, you know, from a, from a, from a laptop. I mean, just completely technically not proficient at all. Um, he could care less what words come out of my mouth. What he really wants to know is when there's a problem, do you think you know how to fix it with this thing? Cause if the answer to that question is yes, well, let's just go with that thing. That seems, that seems great to me. And then when we have the budget, talk and the thing that i'm suggesting is infinitely less expensive than the other thing then it quickly launches to the top of the to the top of the scale but i think there is a fallacy in that so far as if these companies aren't willing to pay for these open source projects a they're not going to be around very long and b if they are around very long they're going to suffer from a number of security vulnerabilities that will never be patched because there isn't money to pay people to work on them and that is the other thing that you're seeing large companies even if they're not making the choice themselves to dig into that are starting to pump money and resources into free and open source projects and that's true of places like capital one akimi 13 other organizations will have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com that were added to an open source security group. And essentially what they're looking at is, hey, we get these security vulnerabilities like Dirty Cred, which was a security vulnerability that's been in the Linux kernel for eight years. We can't rely on this infrastructure if these kind of problems are there. We need to fix them. How do we do that? We need money. We need developers. We need to fix this. Okay, here we go. The amount of money that I would spend with you doing this open source thing is going to still be le- cost me less money in the long term than doing business over here with with this other proprietary organization. And we absolutely see that at the smaller scale that we work with at Ultaspeed. We go into clients and say, here is an open source alternative. Here is the cost for it. And we absolutely build in 
a cost margin to try to give back to some of these projects. We don't have people that complain. For the most part, they're very happy. And they're accustomed to the idea of paying for software. So giving that money to the open source community or the developer that actually works on the project, they don't have a problem with. And as we talked about last week, the ability for us to step in and bridge the gap when the project isn't able to fix a problem that we have a specific you know, one-off case where that client needs it and they're willing to pay for it, all the boats rise because the tide is going up. My third point is you are seeing the power being returned to the individual. To the individual, not the group, not the collective, not the Internet at large, to the individual. And you can see this all over the place. It is particularly true in the gaming area, right? If you look at what's happened with the latest release of Proton, you're getting more compatibility on Linux and and the Steam Deck. If you look at what's coming out of the people that have ordered Steam Decks, a lot of them are saying... You know, most of the games work right out of the box on this open source operating system, Arch Linux, not even the, uh, you know, as not the thing that we would look at when we're talking about the pinnacle of, of, of stability and not changing this. This is the bleeding edge, literally the front of the bleeding edge. And Valve has managed to harness this in a way that we take advantage of the fast-paced development cycle so that as fixes come out, they're immediately applied to the end user, and they're able to exert enough control because it is open source that they can stop breaking changes from hitting their end, use, their end users. And so all Valve wanted was a hardware and an underlying operating system to run their platform on. All users wanted was an easy way to play their games. And Linux has consistently delivered better performance. And today, the experience on Linux in many ways, as we've talked about on this program multiple times, rivals that of Windows. Set two boxes side by side, put Windows 10 on one, put uh, SteamOS on the other box, load them up with games, you are going, you have a, a real chance at having a better experience on Linux than you do on Windows. And gosh darn it, if I could have never said that or predicted that five years ago, uh, it is absolutely true today. Many programs that were simply not usable five years ago from a professional standard, now that's all we use in the professional world. And the greatest example I have of that is Caden Live. Five years ago in 2017, you could edit a video in Caden Live if you were okay with it crashing every once in a while and losing some of your progress. Today, I think it's been at least three years, maybe longer, since I've reached for Lightworks or any other proprietary uh, software that runs on Linux to try to edit videos because Caden Live does it all and does it all so well that I have slipped people that are used to Adobe Premiere into Caden Live, they don't even know a difference because the UI so closely mimics what Adobe Premiere is able to do. I have friends and I run into colleagues that have Signal, not because they're open source advocates, not because they care about the freedom and security that comes with Signal, but because that's what their friends are on. And that is what is taking off because it is an open source interoperable uh, piece of software that exists. It's easy to get onto. And over time, WhatsApp and, you know, um, uh, Viber and Facebook Messenger and all of these other platforms have at one time or another hurt the user. They've hurt their privacy. They've hurt their trust. They've lied to them. They have had technical limitations or problems, and people have abandoned those platforms in search of something they can rely on. And what you're seeing is you they bounce around from one proprietary platform to the next, and then they eventually land on something open source. And because there's a community behind open source, because it's very difficult to kill off a project, because it just 
continues to gain steam and momentum. And then what one project does is implemented into another project. And what that project does is implemented into a third project. You eventually get to a point where everybody really starts to uh, be able to fire on all cylinders. And I, I, I have seen that happen with uh, ProtonMail. You see that happen with Bitwarden. You see that happen with IX Systems, with NetGate. All of these are companies and projects that have started to compete very much with their direct uh, competitor in the open source world and really have not had any particular problems. Um, and so I, 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 I watch all of that unfold and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. I'm grateful to the developers that participate. I'm grateful to the people that fund the development of these projects. And I'm developed and I'm thankful for the people who are advocates of the open source world who go out and help other people and help companies uh, get established and work on these things. And so if you're listening to this program, you're doing a part to play into that. And I want to thank you as a celebration of that. We are launching a challenge coin and it, we're going to put some requirements on the challenge coin. It's not just you can have one. And the idea is the following. If you have done something to uh, contribute to a, f- a free and open source project, if you've committed code, if you helped with documentation, if you've donated money, if you've made a commitment to help newbies get onboarded, if you've introduced uh, free and open source software to an organization or to a work environment. Uh, I want you to write in live at asknoahshow.com and I want you to tell me the story of what you've done to help with open source. And if there was a mission, if I could sum it up into words, 2017, we set out to, to, to create or to curate rather open source stewards. And so as we get to episode 300, I want to start acknowledging those of you in the community that aren't just in this community, but go all over the place and try to help people with open source and try to serve them. And so I want you to write in live at asknoshow.com. Tell me what that story is. The top 10 stories, we're going to send coins out. The rest of them are going to be entered into a drawing and we'll draw from those people. Um, we will put you all together inside of a room to connect you with open source resources and people that can help you because we want to empower you to do what you're doing. So thanks for listening to episode 300. It's been a great 300 episodes. I can't wait to see what's next. We record every Tuesday. The music in my ears means we're out of time. We'll see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. Show.com.